Welcome to Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, and we've teamed up with Max Tennis Academy in Ireland. We've brought this podcast together to entertain, educate, and energize the tennis community through the different lenses of the sport that we love. From Grand Slam champions to those at grassroots level, from sports journalists to backroom staff, Our aim is truly to get under the bonnet of the tennis world at all levels. So sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 126 of Control the Controllables. And as you guys are all in Wimbledon fever, we've got a young British tennis player who almost made it to the main draw last week. The Grand Slams are the highlight of my career so far I mean it's so fun being around them playing matches there were different to any other junior event there was um, especially Wimbledon which is where I live so I had a lot of people watching me and people I know so that was yeah that was great that was probably the best time of my life and that was the youngster Arthur Ferry now we recorded this podcast the week before Wimbledon qualifying whereas Arthur found himself one set away and at one point a couple of games away from being, I believe, the youngest British player to ever qualify at Wimbledon. He won his first two matches in qualifying, beating players 7-800, ranking places above him. If you haven't seen Arthur Ferry play, I advise you do. He plays with with a freedom, he plays with a flair that some might say has come from the French side of his family, you know, he's a little bit French, but he, he, he recognises himself as British. He was as highly ranked as number 12 in the world in juniors. And for somebody who was so small as a youngster, for him to make his way in the game, uh, his story is is absolutely fantastic. He's just finished his first year at Stanford University, where he went in as the highest-ranked freshman in the country. And there's many insights that Arthur is going to give you through this podcast. So sit back, relax, and enjoy, as always. I'm sure there's a little rain break somewhere in Wimbledon that you'll be able to still keep the tennis fever nice and high. And I'm going to pass you over to Arthur Ferry. So, Arthur Ferry, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Thanks for having me, Dan. Uh, this... a pleasure to be here. Take take two. Take one didn't quite. We gave it a go a few days ago, and I realised, what is I was thinking, what is this noise? And after five minutes, I asked Arthur what the noise was, and uh, it was the rain in the UK causing him to put his windscreen wipers on. So very apt in the grass court season in England that there's a bit of rain putting the podcast off. There always is. <laughs> but no, I'm I'm really excited to get to know you a bit better, actually, Arthur. I mean, I've I've seen lots of you over, over the years, as us coaches do. Players never quite realise how much coaches pay attention to all, all the other players as well. And I think where your story's quite fascinating is 
you know, are you English? Are you French? You know, what are you? You've got, you seem to play with a bit of that French flair in you. Um, and, and like I said, when we spoke on Friday, I think the first time I saw you, you were age nine and you, you, you were not the biggest player in the world, but you had a, you had a big way about you on the court with the skills that we, you were showing. So, so give the listeners your story, your tennis story. Where did it all start? Uh, yeah, so I started off um, at my local club called Westside. Um, I think my parents had a big influence in um, the start of my tennis uh, career. My mum played to a very high level. She was 200 WTA. She was the one who got me into it originally. And yeah, I mean, we were living to next like 50 meters away from our, from our, from our tennis club. So that probably helped too. And I had a great coach called Alison Taylor, who kind of, sorted out all the basics, the foundations, technique. Um, and I was, I was in normal school until I was after GCSEs. I think that was the right choice to make. Um, I finished all those up and then decided to do two, to give myself two years where I kind of played full-time on the ITF junior tour with two of my coaches, Craig Veal and uh, Benoit Fouché, my French coach. And yeah, I, I, did, I did school at home and um, kind of focused on my tennis for those two years. And that worked out pretty well, I thought. I improved a lot, had a lot more time to play tennis. And then, yeah, made the choice to go to college, which wasn't an easy one to make. But yeah, I've been at Stanford for a year now and um, everything's going well. Obviously, the past year has been the been a bit tricky for everyone. But um, yeah, hopefully it'll be in the future, it'll be good and then... Let's just see where my tennis takes me. So you've told us your life story in two minutes. Where do we go with the podcast now? I'm going to have to take you back. My first question actually is, where are your parents from? Uh, both of them are French. but um, So I, I was born in France, um, but then they, they came here when I was six months old. So I feel very English by now. I haven't lived at all in France uh, okay. apart from summers and kind of tournaments, but I, I train here and do my school here. I do everything here. So would you class yourself as British? Uh, it's always a tricky one. I'd say, I'd say I've, as the years pass by, I feel more and more English, um, more and more British. Uh, but I still definitely, I mean, we still speak French at home and my family's French. So yeah, I'd say 50-50. Could you play Davis Cup for both? Are you are you eligible for France and for and for Britain? Uh, I think there's a rule saying if you play for one, you've got to wait four years. I think to play for the next for the other one. Um, but for the foreseeable future, I I would love to play for Britain. I wouldn't see myself playing for France in, anytime soon. So you're committed to Britain. Ireland haven't tried to get you, have you? Ireland normally get like people from anywhere, like in the in, for 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 Irish football. So uh, I, I, <laughs> I haven't got I haven't got the call up yet. <laughs> and in terms of your parents being in the UK, then because I believe your dad's quite strongly associated to French football team. I won't even embarrass myself by <laughs> saying it. The, the English version is Orient, but I would imagine it's Lorient or something yeah. along those lines. So, so tell us about how they ended up in England. Uh, so my dad was working in, I think it was in 07. He started a company, um, an investment um, managing company in, in London. So that's why they moved there. I mean, he was working there before as well, but then yeah, it was in I think 09 or, or 2010 where he 
he kind of took over that that French club, uh, French football club. So he kind of divides his time between both his work in in London and the football in France. But he he can control the the football from from London anyway. So he doesn't spend okay. too much time over there. So what's what's his role there? Uh, he's the chairman of the club over there. Yeah. So is that who you now support? Do you get get to watch them? You got a keen eye on them, or not so much? Yeah, I mean, I've got to say, I don't follow I don't follow football too much. I'm more into I'm more into the other sports. But yeah, I mean, if I had to, obviously follow their results and watch the games. Um, so yeah, it's good. It's kind of good to have a team to to look at. And the question, it's amazing how many people we've had, like how many tennis players we've had on the podcast who their parents played or their parents coached or even like having Jamie Murray on and obviously telling this story of Jamie and Andy, obviously Judy was a coach and then they were down the tennis club and they happened to just start playing tennis and picking up balls. And it just seems like such a common story, you know, and obviously I don't think we've had many parents that have been as high as 200 in the world, you know, so obviously your mum's obviously had a, had a fantastic career herself. You said that she was, has had an influence on your tennis. How was, she with you when you were younger oh yeah she helped me so much um at the start obviously when I didn't really take it too seriously she was she was coaching me she was playing with me in the, in the weekends and give me advice whatever but then I mean most of her role now is just like off court helping me with my like program like my schedule and yeah she's just a great influence um on me kind of always not putting any pressure on me um making sure I'm, I'm enjoying it. Um, so yeah, it's not obviously not so much on court anymore because I've got my coaches, but she definitely helps me in other aspects a lot. And what's the one best bit of advice that she gave you when you were younger that potentially you didn't realise it was a good piece of advice until you started to get into your late teens and move into adulthood? I wouldn't have one in particular. I would, I would say like, the fact that she never put any pressure on me and always like made sure I was having fun whilst playing tennis, yeah. that was super important. And that I didn't realize how much improvement is linked to having fun on court and enjoying the game. Very good. Can you give us an example? Give us an example of how, how do you make somebody have fun? Uh, play a type of game style that they enjoy. I mean, for me, especially with my personality, it's very, very key that I, enjoy playing otherwise I tend to play a very monotonous like a monotonous game and that's yep. where I don't excel and I don't have fun either so um for me is yeah always being trying to be creative and do things that you're not necessarily comfortable doing um not always playing the same the same ball same game style that's for me anyway and and do you think because anyone that hasn't seen Arthur play I strongly recommend you do he, what he's saying, he, he does have a very exciting game style. You know, the the skills really are out of the world. There's a there's a couple of uh, brothers. I don't know if you you've you, you remember them or whether you came across them, but two Belgian boys, Olivia Rockus and Christoph Rockus, yeah. and they were my age. And when I see you play, you 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 remind me of them. You know that ability to create shots from almost nowhere, the ability to take it early, fantastic hand skills. How much of that was born and how much of that was worked on? 
Tough to say. Tough to say. I mean, you've got to compensate for the height somehow. Um, I'm not going to be yeah. bumming on serve, so I've got to find other ways to be effective. It's definitely something that I've worked on a lot. I mean, we were playing so many volley games and like, like start start or finish a practice, just mess about, play like volley games or touch or whatever. That's definitely helped. I mean, obviously, there's probably some sort of like a little bit which has come from just like nat- naturally. But I feel like you can definitely develop that creativity as well, like through this through the structure of your um, training sessions, um, etc. Is there a danger that you have too many options though when you have so many skills? Yeah, but it, I mean, if you're clear with how how you do want to play and how you want to use the skill set that you have, I mean, it's it's more of a positive than a negative to have too many options. Um, to have loads of options, I feel like it's 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 very beneficial to me anyway. Not that I do have too many options, but I feel like coming, I can come forward, I can stay back a little bit, um, drop shot, whatever. I feel like it's it helps me be be effective as well. Yeah, because I guess I had a I had Freddie Nielsen on a podcast a couple of weeks ago, yeah. and we were talking about the French Open and. And, and and I was saying, I actually think it could be City Pass's time. You know, it feels to me like he's the next one to come through. And Freddie seemed to think that, and I was talking about how he had the variation and he could do this out of his forehand corner. He could come forward, he can slice, he can he can find different ways. And, and Freddie's take on it was, in his opinion, for him to win a Grand Slam, he actually le- needs to streamline his game a little bit more. And, and he was almost saying that as you go up the levels, that identity needs to be absolutely clear. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Oh, yeah. I definitely believe in game identity, like, very, very strongly. I feel yeah. like um, if, you're, if you're very set with what you want to do and how you're going to be effective with it, how you're going to put it onto the court and obviously be effective against your opponent, that's so important for me. I feel like when I'm clear with what I'm doing in my head, I feel like I can be very effective. And one question that I'd be really interested to, to look into on that offer as well is before you play a match, how much are you focused on your game identity and what you're doing compared to how you're using your skills in order to affect your opponent? Personally, for me, it could be it could be a like a mistake from my part, but I I focus a lot on myself, which is not necessarily a good thing, and I have to be reminded that I do need to take into account how the how my opponent plays. That's for me anyway. But I know like I know that the guys who are at the top, obviously, Simon is Gilles Simon is a perfect example of that. He almost doesn't focus on himself. He just yeah. looks at what's across the net and strictly uses that yeah i mean i think it's a balance isn't it and again we had we had ever on the podcast after he after he's run in in monte carlo and i thought it was fascinating because he said first match against i think it was lajevic he he said he came forward 54 times um next match he then played against her cats and he said against her cats he was a little injured and i felt i could beat him from the back yeah. Then I played Djokovic and he said uh, Djokovic just loves a target. So I was feeling I had to try and find my way to the net in a different way. Then I played Goffin and against Goffin, I didn't come forward, but then all of a sudden in the third set, I found myself coming forward. 
you know, and, and to see how he was able to adapt his game style whilst I suppose keeping an identity, you know, and he, and he did say at the end of that, he then said, however, I do know that my game identity is coming forward and that's something I need to look to do. But just against those four different opponents, I had to find different ways to be able to do that, to unlock that particular match that was in front of us. And I just thought that was such an interesting insight into how, I guess, a top 30 player's thinking. Yeah, there are also different ways to put your game identity on court. As Evo said, like it's coming forward, but you could come forward off the return or you could hit a short slice and ghost in. Like there are loads of different ways to do it. And how much have you managed to practice with, I guess, Dan Evans, Andy Murray, you know, guys that have variation in their game as well, who who I would imagine you would learn a lot from. Have you had that opportunity? Yeah, yeah. I've had the I've had the chance in the past year or so to practice a lot with those guys. I I did the the hitting partner at the O2 as well for two weeks. Great. That was that was so good. Well, yeah, I just spent two weeks with the top eight guys in the world practicing. So that was good. Yeah, I mean, I learned a lot from those guys and you can see how they practice, how how focused they are and the intensity is great. Can you share some stories, some some of the, I guess, stories that have had a lasting impact on you from that? Yeah, I guess one that stuck with me was uh, with Djokovic at the O2. Uh, the, the, first, the first couple of times that I was practicing with him, he was just very, very on it from the first ball. He would be considered like very angry. Like you could just see that he was... It would bother him if he missed an easy ball. Like we were hitting up and down in the first three minutes. If he missed in the net, he would, you could see it would bother him. He'd go talk to, to his coach. Not one ball would be hit without an intention. And yeah, you could just see like when he's, when he's playing, he's super focused. And when he's sitting down at change of ends or at the end of practice, he's very relaxed. He's kind of taking his mind off the tennis and, and doing something else. But when he's on, when, when he's, when he's practicing, he's on it. He knows what he's got to do. He's hitting his targets. Yeah, super focused. And what about off the court? Because I, I always think we we call it at the academy the other 18 hours. Yeah. You know, you, you've got your, your six hours of training and then we call it the daily bill. You know, everyone's got a got a bill to pay. You know, nothing comes for free in this life. So what are you what are you doing in those other hours? Is that something you managed to get an insight of being around those guys at the O2 as well? Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. I mean, we were all in a bubble as well, so I guess they couldn't do what they what they usually did because they couldn't go outside of the of the restaurant, yeah. or the the tennis facility, or the or the hotel. But the Serbian guys were playing a lot of cards. Uh, Rafa was just with his team chatting. Yeah, I mean, I guess it would change. It would differ for the different players as well. Um, a lot of them would just take their mind off tennis. I mean, I assume that they've done this for so many years that. They can't just be thinking about tennis all the time. So they find ways to distract themselves, play games, cards, socialize, whatever. Yeah, no, and I would imagine also they, they know themselves so well. And by now, what makes them take how their mind feels, how their body feels, you know, all of those sort of things. And I want to actually just kind of sidestep over now to talking about your coaches. It's quite interesting. You talked about an English coach and a French coach. Uh, you know, you still can't make your mind on that English and French thing. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of obviously Craig Veal, who's a good friend of mine, and, you know, he was on the podcast. And and I know you and Craig go back a long way. So how how old were you when you first started working with Craig? Uh, I think I was maybe nine or 10. Right. Okay. 
yeah or even even eight maybe it was at Sutton I actually also remember the first the first session we had <laughs> on the backcourt at Sutton on the indoor but no it was yeah it started off two sessions a week like squads and then we went abroad a few times for tournaments and yeah it just slowly built up obviously it was taking my, my tennis more and more seriously as the years went by and yeah it just got to a point where we were uh, traveling a lot for tournaments practicing um doing individuals and yeah i mean i've we've developed a great relationship um improved so much in the what is it now 10 years or so that we've been working together um so yeah it's great and then i met benoit when i was 14 or 15 um and we've been kind of working as a three as a trio uh since then traveling more with benoit because craig's has had a few, has a few commitments here in the UK. Um, so he's got a family and he's working at Reeds. He's traveling a few a little more with with the uh, Alex Alexa and and Des, who are two two doubles players. So yeah, just kind of mixing my time between them two, and and so far it's working pretty well. Because it seems like a very mature way that it's worked you know and I know that Craig would say he certainly developed a lot as a coach through that journey as well it's like you've almost grown up together through, through that process but but what's what's the secret to that working you're now 19 20 so we're talking 11 11 12 years you know and, and, and that's not normal within a within a player coach relationship so what's been the secret to to that success I think um, communication is very important between the player and the coach, always knowing where we're going, not just kind of going through the motions of practice, especially with, with Benoit um, and Craig, like as a team, we've always had like a direction to where we go to, where we're trying to go and the steps we take to, to try and achieve a goal. Yeah. And the, and Benoit and Craig have worked very well together to in communication to, yeah, keep updated and always know what's what's going on. Yeah, because a little bit like um, when a girlfriend splits up with you. I don't know if you've ever had that off. I'm sure you know those boyish. You look, you've got the Justin Bieber look going. You must get Justin Bieber sometimes. The Justin Justin Bieber look. You got the French the French way. Maybe you haven't had to experience what I did when I was younger. But if a girlfriend moves on from you and they tell you they just want to be friends and you know, but we'll keep in touch yeah. and you know that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, that, that also happens, I think, a lot with players and coaches, you know, where yeah. it's like, okay, so someone else is coming on board, but I still want you involved, but, you know, we'll keep talking and we'll keep doing, yeah, you know, maybe we'll come out. You know, I get that at the academy quite a bit and it never really happens in reality. So so, so for that kind of three-way relationship to work with two coaches and a player, you know, you've you've mentioned the communication, which must be must be fantastically good, you know. And it, how does that work? You know, is it is there a lead? Is one of them a lead? Are they working on the same at the same stage, the same level? You know, how often are they talking? How much are you involved in that? I think it'd be really interesting for the listeners to understand how if things are done well and communication is strong, that that there can be that support system in place. Yeah, I mean, I think Benoit was Benoit was traveling a lot more with me. Like, so he was seeing he was seeing what I was producing in matches. So he had a little bit more information on what I was um, putting on court. So he was he kind of he was like probably like 60-40. Um, him kind of leading the 
the goals and the and the the ways to improve. Um, and that was communicated through calls. We were doing regular regular calls, regular, like regular Zoom meetings or just like FaceTimes. Yeah, written reports a little bit, um, and just just texting a lot. Just updates, you know, it's not very, it's not like the longest, the most time consuming thing ever. It's just little updates, see where we are, how we're doing, like how the improvements are going, what the goals are, schedule, whatever. And think that, yeah, even if it's not like just purely tennis, it's always good to just stay in touch and, and know what's going on. Yeah, no, well, well done to the three of you. I think it's, I think it's great when you have hear stories like that because there's, there's so many coaches that let their egos get in the way and they forget that it's about the player, you know. And clearly, Craig and Benoit have put you at the absolute forefront, you know, which is which is one of the reasons I'm sure why you've had such success. I want you to want to move into your your juniors. It, it felt like from afar you went quite quickly up the ITF junior rankings. And I guess my, my question and almost topic on this is I hear a lot of people say, Oh, it's a waste of time playing juniors. Why play juniors? What's the point? And then obviously there's the other side that are quite strong for it. What's your, what's your take on that argument? Well, I mean, where I, where I was at my level, when I, when was it like 2018, when I started playing juniors, I would not have seen myself, take that leap and go straight into the pros um i was still in school i yeah i just started playing my first few grade fives or j5s whatever they call now for me juniors was extremely beneficial i firstly i enjoyed it a lot my time there being in a kind of a group of juniors is so fun it's the experience that you don't really get in the pros um until you get obviously that to that top level um and it also it also just it's kind of the 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 ATB tours little brother. I feel. I mean, like you're still traveling a lot. You're getting used to, yeah, playing after jet lag, far away from home, playing three weeks, four weeks in a row. Um, it's kind of yeah. The life the life is very similar to how it is on tour. It's just obviously the the level is very different, and yeah, there is there are obviously subtle differences. But for me, it taught me a lot, and I enjoyed my time so much. So that was that was the that, that was the key. Yeah, I love that you keep going back to enjoyment, you know, and that's yeah. it's it's such an important point that you keep making. But yeah, I would be a, I guess to give my opinion on it, I'm a hundred percent with you. I think it is. I love the way you've put that as well. The little brother of the ATP WTA because it's it is it's 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 almost identical in lots of ways. You know, even from the sign-ins, you yeah. know, the sign-ins that you have to do from the practice courts. You know, and, and another big thing for me with juniors that I'm a big advocate of, and, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, is if you do then get a chance to play the junior Grand Slams, there's then a sense of belonging. You know, yeah. you're you're rubbing shoulders with the top guys. You might get an opportunity to practice with them. You know, or you're in the same locker rooms. You 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 just you, that even getting that journey from the hotel into Melbourne Park that that might be different, or getting on the bus in New York to go 40 minutes across Manhattan to get to get into uh, into Flushing Meadows. You know, when you do, or if you do, then get the chance to do that as a as a professional player. I, I I just think it just then feels right. And if I just 
don't mind sharing a quick story. Like I remember Liam Brody, who again, Liam, who I've had the opportunity to do a bit of work with over the years. And, and I would call a good friend. In my opinion, Liam will be a top hundred player one day because he's always believed he will be. And I, and I remember at Wimbledon a few years ago, he walked in and it was with Lloyd, actually, Lloyd Glasspool, who hadn't had such a successful junior career uh, or hadn't played as so much ITF juniors. And there was Dominic team. Hey, Broads, how you doing? Da, 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 da. And then we walked there and then him and Kyrgios are going at each other, you know, and it just... It was so normal for Liam in that environment, whereas he was 250 in the world, pretty much the same ranking as Lloyd. But but they were almost looking at, well, who's Lloyd? Who's this guy? You know, so then there was that, that whole feeling of belonging. And I think sometimes that's overlooked. And 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 you went, I believe, career high of 12 in the juniors. So you've obviously, you've played all of the Grand Slams, have you? Yeah. Yeah. Tell, tell the listeners what that experience is like as a junior. Yeah, no, as, as you said, I mean, it's, yeah, I've, the Grand Slams are the highlight of my career so far. I mean, it's so fun being around them. Um, it definitely makes you want to work harder and strive for success when you see when you see the conditions that they're in. I mean, you're not even the same in the same hotel as them and the fans and not even you like having the same food, whatever. But it makes it gives you a taste of like what the what it could be like. And it definitely make like motivates you to work. To work harder. I mean, I I enjoyed my time in in the slams so much. Playing matches there were different to any other junior event there was, um, especially Wimbledon, which is where I live. So I had a lot of people watching me and people I know. So that was yeah, that was great. That was probably the best time of my life. That week in 2019, unfortunately, we couldn't get it in 2020, which was such a shame. But yeah, I mean, for, for juniors, that's why I think it's, I think it's a great stepping stone. You see, you see how the pros practice, how they play, um, and you see what the life is on tour, kind of. So you definitely mature a lot. And you made semi-finals or doubles? Yeah, made semis with with Toby uh, at Wimbledon, the first one. And I made semis with Felix as well in in Australia, doubles as well. Unfortunately, we couldn't go any further. Um, which was a shame. We lost in the super tie rig. Right, okay. But good good memories. And I, and I have to pick up on that offer as well. It, there's so many um, difficulties of this pandemic and uh, there is just a whole bunch of juniors out there. At least you've got your memories from the year before, but that just had 2020 taken away from them, which, which would have been probably 50 or 60% of them would have been there only one time that they got to play the junior grand slams, which can often be the career highlight for people, you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, not everyone will get to go back and play at the grand slams. And I think it's just a, it's a point m- worth making um, just to bring attention to it. You know, the, the, the difficulty and obviously on the larger scale of things, it's people's health is the most important thing, but it, it must be difficult for those guys that missed that. Yeah, so tough. So tough for the O2s. The O2s were the ones who kind of got screwed by the by 2020. Yeah. Uh, I, I was lucky because I went to Australia in 2020 before it all started. Right. But okay. um, a lot of them, I mean, I, I just missed Wimbledon and New York and US Open, but a lot of them also missed Australia and French. Obviously, the cut was very high as well because of it. So, so yeah, it was a shame, especially Wimbledon being my favorite one. I would have, I would have backed myself to go deep in that. 
but yeah, we, I mean, I had, I had other opportunities, other things got presented to me that wouldn't have happened if, if that normal schedule had gone ahead. I mean, I had a great summer. I was at home as well with friends, family. So yeah, there were positives and negatives. Obviously the bigger picture tennis in the bigger picture doesn't tennis doesn't really matter, but yeah, personally, it obviously did affect me in good and bad ways, both. And 2002s, 2003s, who were the ones to watch other than the obvious ones that we've already had a couple that have started to come through? Yeah. Uh, well, this tough one, I mean, you never know, but for the O2s, uh, obviously Stricker's come through a little bit, Dominic Stricker. Yeah. I played him at played him at French. He won it. He'll, he'll be good. He's got a great, great game on him and stays very calm, composed. O3s, O3s is a very strong year as well. Carlos obviously already coming through. He's, did you see that? Did you did you see that coming for a while? Did he play many juniors? Yeah. Uh, Carlos played a, th- a few juniors. I mean, he kind of skipped them. He was only like 40, 40 ITF, 40 in the juniors. He very quickly just went on to the pros. Uh, and this is Alcaraz for those listening. Carlos yeah, Alcaraz. Carlos Alcaraz. He was good. He was especially good on clay. Um, obviously, his game starting to transfer to other services as well, especially on the hard. And Mazzetti, yeah, Mazzetti was always extremely good. He won a he won a slam when he was when he was young. There's another good Swiss guy, I know too, called Leandro Riedi. He made final at French. He 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 could be very good. And the French guys will be good as well. Cazo and and Harold Mayer, they'll be good as well. And you didn't mention Holger Rune. Uh, sorry, Holger as well. Yeah, Holger's also starting to come through a little bit. Yeah, he's great game. Is it again? And good mentality. So. The mentality gets you very far in tennis. That's what yeah. I found. So. Well, I spoke to him on the podcast and it was the most amazing half an hour of my life. I, really? I couldn't, well, just in, in terms of it, and I tip my hat to him, but I do have my concerns and and I, and, I, and I don't mind. I've been honest on this podcast throughout. And if Holger does listen to this and he wants to talk to me about it, I'm more than happy to. You know, I'll, I'll always be, be honest about my feelings. And, you know, he said something that really bothered me. I said, I said, what happens? Because it was just it was tennis, tennis, tennis. There was nothing other than tennis. Yeah. You know, there was he's he loved tennis. Yeah. Forget school, forget social life, forget anything. And I said, what happens if you get injured? Or what happens if you come to a point where you you hit a bit of a bit of a difficulty? You know, you have to you have to deal with some adversity. You know, how are you going to deal with that? And he said, "I don't get injured. I'm too strong to get injured." There was just a bit of a lack of humility and understanding. I'm 41 years old. I'm, I'm nowhere near as good a tennis player as Holger Rune, but I, I've seen it. I've seen it. How what this sport does to you, and and if you're not careful, it, it catches you out pretty quick. And and pretty much everyone at some point has to deal with adversity, you know. Which is why I always like to look for players that have this different success measure not just tennis 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 you know and that's what is coming through loud and clear with you offer is it's not the be all and end all it doesn't mean that you're not gonna give your absolute best and throw your life at it but you're also you're finding happiness outside of the sport and you've got a life outside of the sport and you can almost see where the sport fits in the context of your life and i just think with holger i think you'll make top 100 without a whole lot of concerns 
But I think there will come a point where he gets a bit stuck at a level. You know, that might be 20 in the world. That might be 30 in the world. That might be 50. And how is he then going to deal with it? Now, I'm sure he'll find these ways, but it feels to me like currently his mindset would potentially get stuck at that moment. Yeah. I mean, I think team was quite similar to him as well. He was extremely focused on tennis, practicing whatever, eight hours a day and had nothing nothing next to it. Um, I know I know that Holger's um, very passionate about tennis. Um, I've spoken to him a little bit about it as well. And yeah, he's been he's often been criticized for that. To be honest, that's why that's why I went to college. I I'm also not as good as Holger right now. Uh, and didn't really want to take that risk really and just put it, put all put everything on the line for for tennis. I had a lot of people telling me that I should I should just go pro and kind of give it my best and then see see whatever happens. Yep. Um, I didn't want to take that risk um, and I thought the college was a better route, especially a lot of people were starting to emerge through college tennis as well. So maybe I could do four years and keep evolving and then play after that. Maybe I could just do two and go for it and then finish it off after. I mean, we don't know, but for me, putting everything on the line for for tennis to try and make it pro straight away, I was not mature enough and, again, didn't think I was going to enjoy it. So, Yeah, fair play. And I think it's been proven time and time again 18 to 22 are the sticky years, you know, where where people, if you don't get through relatively quick and you're not ready physically, mentally, emotionally, game identity, all of these things, you can quite quickly get stuck. And on the same side, I don't college isn't for everyone because you've also got to find the right college. Yeah. So, so talk us through that process of finding the right college for you. I think you must be the first British male to go to Stanford, maybe. Uh, certainly for a long time. Yeah, I think so for, for a bit. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I just want to say like ten, that college is definitely not for everyone as well. Like some people mm. are ready, ready to go pro and, and they do it and fair play to them. I mean, it requires a lot mm. of, a lot of confidence to do that. And if they feel like they're ready for it, then they should go for it. Uh, but for college, I kind of knew started like 15, 16, that's that, that, that was what, what I was wanting, wanting to do. Um, obviously got put in a little bit into question when I was when I went higher up in the juniors but I had support from Sarah Borwell who's um, an agent at um, an agent for for US colleges and my parents helped me so much I talked to quite a lot of them and Stanford was the one that offered me the best mix between academics and also having a good program I, I felt like I had a good, good relationship with the coaches there and yeah, and for me, that was the best option. Obviously, Stanford has got a quite a good reputation for academics as well. So that that was what fit into the plan perfectly for me, um, having a good backup plan if tennis didn't, like, was, was to go a different way than I expected. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, you've just, yeah, you've just got to, for recruitment, it's, it's kind of a long process. You've got to do the SAT and, you got to speak to a lot of the coaches and stuff, but it's definitely worth it, in my opinion. Whichever colleges were you looking at? Uh, I had UC Berkeley as my second choice, which is California, where yep. um, a few of the English guys went, uh, Ben Draper, okay, yep. Malloy. And then I, I kind of always wanted to go to California. I don't know why. For, for the weather, playing outdoors, and just the 
lifestyle there. Uh, I had U- yeah USC and UCLA as well there um, as my as my third and fourth choices. They were down in two schools down in LA. Not who, bad choices, huh? Yeah, who also very two very good tennis schools and academics, which is what I was looking for. So yeah, I had a I had a few options and decided to go to Stanford. For for those listening that don't know the universities that Arthur's just mentioned, Arthur was the highest UTR ranked freshman going in. So pretty much he was able to have the choice of, of, of universities that he could go to, which is, which is really a massive accolade when, when we're looking at, at university sport in America, you know, it's not like choosing between going to, and I don't even want to say any universities because I don't want to disrespect them in the UK, but it's, it's, it really is, is a big deal. And to have such amazing university speaking to you, did you go and visit them or were you not able to with the pandemic? uh no so the pandemic hadn't started yet um it was 2019 but i was going to and then i basically got my spot um my spot was confirmed at stanford okay so i was going to go and visit um berkeley and stanford and maybe a few others but then um, my spot was confirmed and so i was it was kind of a no-brainer for me it's probably a good thing you might never have come back because the the recruitment trips it's a bit like a scene from the film the hangover you know yeah. you go you know you go to these go to all these universities and they're all trying to impress the incoming re- recruit with uh with the best looking girls on campus and whatever else there is that's going to get them over the line and 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 tell us about your first year how's the how's the experience been has it lived up to to what you expected uh, I'm, i must admit i'm sitting here very jealous i'm an lsu tiger i loved my four and a half years over there and yeah. i'm very, very jealous that yours at the start relative start of your journey yeah i mean lsu is a great school as well um we played them actually in ncaa's i don't we know did, that's followed. right yeah my my year was uh it was interesting i i definitely enjoyed it a lot it was probably very different to what it would have been without COVID. Um, obviously, I only spent like two and a half, three months on campus. So nowhere near the whole year. We literally just had a shortened season and, and that was done. But uh, yeah, I mean, the lifestyle was what I was expecting. Great weather all year round. Coaches, very, very good. Facilities, unbelievable, as as is depicted. And yeah, great. I've got a great... Um, bunch of guys on my team and and I mean we did what we did what we could with a shortened season we only got onto campus in March whereas some of the teams were on campus in December they were practicing since then so it was tough we we managed to win our conference which was which was good and then um in NCAAs we lost to a to a pretty good Virginia team unfortunately but yeah overall it was a great experience and I can't wait for next year because it will be probably a lot better You've mentioned your coaches over there a couple of times. Is it Goldstein, Paul Goldstein? Yeah, Paul, yeah. Paul and Brandon Coop. And right. uh, our volunteers called Francis Sargent, a guy from Kent. He's also right. okay. Coach, yeah. And and how do they, again, for the listeners, how does that work in terms of communication with Craig and Benoit? Is there a commu- communication loop there? Yeah, so they're, they're very, very good. Um, they were adamant uh, to keep in contact with my coaches back home. So they were... They're very good with that, calling Benoit and, and Craig, keeping keeping them updated Congrats. on the situation out there. Um, 
what to work on, etc. Because obviously they don't know me as well as Craig and Benoit do. So um, there was an element of communication there that was pretty important. And yeah, and that was done. So, so that was good. So for those listening, I've got a little quiz for you. Not necessarily a quiz, but more more something I want you to give information for. So if we talk top 25, Division One, US College, we can all, you can only give your opinion on the, on the men's side. It'd be good to get a, a girl's side on this as well. What's the level of the number one players? An eight, you've got to give me an ATP ranking. Yeah. Uh, top 25 teams, I would say, I'd say maybe 300 and 600. At number one, generally. Number two? Uh, depends a lot. Um, but top 25, uh, I'd say maybe uh, 600 to 1,000. That'd be pretty accurate, I think. You know where I'm going next, number three? Number three, again, it just depends a lot. Um, okay, let's go top 10. Let's go University okay, of Florida 10, won it. And Florida, oh, I mean, Florida... Oh, yeah, in Florida are good, but top ten, I'd say, I'd say, I'd say twos of them six hundred to eight hundred, and threes maybe eight hundred to a thousand, if not a little bit better. Four. Yeah, pretty similar. Maybe end of end of nine hundreds, like start of thousands, and maybe like eight hundred to a thousand two hundred, something like that. Okay. Usually, yeah, and usually five and sixes are maybe a little bit, a little bit less, but. They're usually the most important matches as well, which is uh, which is quite fun usually. So, I mean, overall, the level is getting better and better as the years go by because more and more players are, are going through college. Yeah. I definitely say that, yeah, one, especially one, especially one and two, uh, the best guys, the guys top five, top 10 are playing 300, 400 level. Like they come out of college and they're, they're doing well yeah. in chatties. Yeah, well, look at Cameron, Cameron Norrie not so long ago. He, he came out of college and his ranking was already 250. Yeah. You know, so he was playing a, he was playing a part-time schedule, you know, coming out, coming out of 250. So I think it's just important for, for people to know that and to, and to recognize that when, when they're listening. And, and I guess you must take a bit of inspiration from that because, you know, male British over the last few years, obviously Cameron Norrie, you know, coming coming out and then Paul Job won the NCAAs and, and now has jumped on. I guess you must take a lot of inspiration from that. Yeah, yeah. It's great to see those guys doing well now. I spoke to both of them about it. And yeah, it's just it's just key to keep keep discipline. You know, you've got a lot of distractions. And if you keep the if you keep the the discipline and and training going, then I don't see why why it couldn't be good. You know, you're playing just as much tennis and maybe a tiny bit less and and having a good education on the side. So it's a great way to improve and also have a backup plan. Yeah, and I, and I think one one thing I definitely having a, a young Brit, and and hopefully this is not taken as a as a negative question, but I think the the reality is over the last five, 10, 15, 20 years, we've had a lot of good young Brits, you yeah. know, that have been at the at the higher end of of the junior game. 
that have really struggled to transition then into the pro game. Now I have a few opinions on that. You know, I don't think there's enough. So I think, I think in general, they get put on a pedestal, you know, they get a lot of things thrown at them and, and they feel as if they've already made it and they're, they're already almost protecting something, you know, rather than creating something. I think that's a very different mentality to have. And I think you're already showing that you're a little bit different to that because the fact that you've turned down funding and, and there's no way that you haven't because at number 12 in the world, you're going to be offered that, you know, so you've turned down funding to go and play a professional to, to go your own way. But how else, how else do you avoid those pitfalls that can come with being a, a, a bright future hope in the UK um, and, and keep your feet on the ground? Um, I would say, yeah, obviously juniors is also a downfall of that because you you kind of think you've made it before going to the pros, and if you go straight to the pros, you you're nothing, you know, yeah. and you you've actually got to get to whatever top hundred, and that's the first time you do make top hundred. It's not in juniors; it's in the pros. Um, but I there was one there was one thing that really kind of um, stuck out to me was that it's easy to get drawn into into the whole LTA. Um, it's easy to get drawn with like all the coaches um, to get drawn into getting coached by all of them and, and think that that's where you should be, you know, always at the NTC, always practicing with them. And for me, that was, that's not the right way to go. I should, I told myself that I should stay away. Don't be too much at the NTC and stick with Craig and Benoit and, and train with them. Um, stay a little low key about it, you know, and, not spend too much time with with all the the LTA because I mean the NTC is a very crowded place and people can you easily get drawn into the whole into the whole coaching um, the whole coaches like four on the court and for me it was better to stay away from that and stick to the smaller clubs Rahampton Club where I train or Westside and um, yeah stay a little more low key about it. I have to push you on that a little bit more. Yeah. Go for it. <laughs> what do you mean? What do you mean? Because we're talking about we're talking about the the national governing body, yeah. unbelievable facility. Why why can't we get a culture and environment right for somebody like yourself wanting to go and train and be inspired to train there? So obviously the LTA is a great help, um, and they've actually done a, a, a very good job about it. Like t- telling us you can use these facilities, but you don't have to. I feel like it's good to get to go in there and the hitting partners are great. You can, you can, the environment of all the top players being in there is, is good. And two, three times a week is, it's a, it's a great um, practice session to go in there. But I also feel like spending too much time in there is not good because I don't know, you, it's not how you got this. I didn't get to 12 to, to 12 juniors by going to the NTC every day and being coached by the LTA coaches. Right. It was, yeah. I was, I was at Westside kind of in the smaller clubs, just with Benoit practicing in the, in the cold outdoors. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of, everything's given to you, you know, at the NTC. And I think that staying with the things that worked previously is, very important and i've seen a few people just get drawn into the the whole bubble of 
comfort of the NTC and get drowned in that. But the LTA, I mean, the LTA have done a great job. They've they told us, you know, you can do what you want. We're giving you these great opportunities, and obviously, I'm using them. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is great because they're in my in my opinion, their job is to facilitate development. Yeah. It's not to be the developers. You know, yeah. for you know, for that for that reason, and, and and I don't know exactly what state they're in now, or whether they are facilitators, whether they're centralised, and I, and I don't really want to get into that as such. But just you know, that for years and years has been the problem that people have gone out there and and developed as tennis players and got to a certain stage, and then it's a case of okay, we'll take all of those, put them in an environment that we don't know that works put them with a coach that we don't know connects and and then that's when problems potentially happen you know and I think whereas if they're there to facilitate this resource there there's expertise to dip into then but you have to go your own way and and, and, and like you're saying have that hunger you know we talk France talk about Germany you talk about all of these different hotbeds you know of, of producing players federations don't really produce tennis players you know and I, and I personally don't think it should be their job to you know so it sounds it sounds to me like the way that you've done it is perfect you know I'm sure you get fantastic resources and and access of good experts and good people that you can go into good hitting partners but then you can come out and ultimately build your own career <laughs> it, it's your career yeah, no, you put it, you put it in the great way that saying that they should be the facilitators, not the developers. Yeah, that's the way it should be. But I've seen, I've seen examples where it's gone different ways. Yeah, and it's easy uh, to get drawn into it. it. It is absolutely. My last question before we go into our quick fire round. Um, you're the first guest that I'm asking this question to, but from this day forwards, it's going to be asked to every guest. Okay. Um, the okay. podcast. Yeah, you are. This is a this is a special moment. Unless you completely flunk the answer, and then I might have to rethink whether I <laughs> whether I ask other people. Um, our podcast is called Control the Controllables. It's a it's a big philosophy of mine. It's something that's yeah. very very true to my heart. What does Control the Controllables mean to you? Uh, control you can. You can't control the conditions. You can't control how windy it is. You can't control how the ball bounces. But ultimately, you're dealing with the same thing that your opponent is across the net. And I mean, control the controllables, you think of one thing, it's the serve for me. But you've also got to, yeah, you're dealing with the same conditions as the guy um, opposite the net. And you've got to make do with, with what you've got that day. And that's what you can do. Um, you've got to find a way to make it work. That's what rings um, for me when I hear control the controllables. <laughs> Very good. I might keep the question in. You might. You've just passed. Yeah, you've just pa <laughs> I've made the cut. <laughs> and and quick fire round. Are you ready yeah. for our quick fire? Yeah, ready. Clay courts or hard courts? Hard. Forehand or backhand? Backhand. Serve or return? Return. Roger or Rafa? Roger. Favorite Grand Slam? Wimbledon. And what about Wimby? Wimby male. Title uh, Novak and female. Uh, I'll say, I'll say Ashley Barty. ATP Cup or Davis Cup? ATP Cup. Should players be allowed an injury timeout during the match? 
during the match. No. I agree. You're the first player or the second player to say that. Really? But I agree. I completely As in agree. like if they're if they're like like a like a medical timeout? Medical timeout, yeah. Uh, right. Uh no, they shouldn't be allowed that. Add or no add? Add. One rule change you would make in tennis. Uh got a seven volume first serve. <laughs> I like it. And, <laughs> and who should our next guest be on the podcast? Have you got Andy on? We want Andy badly, but I don't know how. I, I mean, despite the fact that I've got a few wins over Andy on the doubles court, that's my yeah. only. That's my only in. But he's he got you got over him. I think he's avoiding me. I think he's there's like five weeks in a row back in back in two thousand and three when he was twelve and I was really? twenty two. <laughs> <laughs> before before he could even look over the net, he was playing yeah. mini Red Bulls. Um, yeah, yeah I've, I've been un- unable to get him so far. But so you're not allowed to say him. That's an ongoing hope. You've got to say someone that you have the capabilities of bringing onto the show. Who I do. Yeah, that's uh, part, that's part of the contract. Felix Gill. Is he? Is he got something to give me, Felix? Is he? Yeah, he does. Yeah, yeah, he does. He's very different to me. Let's get Felix on. A fellow O2. Yeah, Felix with a pandemic as well. Lots <laughs> of grand slams. Felix has been called. You've been called. And um, my very, very last question. I know that I said my last question. Yeah. Controller controls means a lot to me, and 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 I think one of my biggest things is around success measures. And, and I always think that people can, they measure their success on things that aren't in their control. So, so then because of that, they're kind of destined for failure yeah. <laughs> and destined for, for, for difficulty and all challenges and all of these things. So what would your success measures be over the next few years of things in your control? It's tough to measure them, I guess. Uh, you can't can you can't control results, can you? Not Is really. How do you control? In my, I mean, I guess in 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 the improvements in how first serve percentage, first serve uh, average speed. You can't really measure that. You can't really measure these things, but like how can how consistent you are at the net on the first volley, or you can control that. How how many backhand lines, how many backhand lines for me is especially it's part of my game. How many backhand lines I'm going to hit that close to the line. Yeah. But yeah. you've got, you've gone very tennis specific. And I think, Oh, uh, right. You're just thinking about it. Like well, it, I, I, yeah. I, I guess for me, one, if I, if I go to this conversation, Arthur, I think one of my biggest things that I've taken from this, from you, which I think the listeners sh- should and will take from ultimately you've had enjoyment at the very top of your list, you know, yeah. in, in everything you've said, it's like, well, I'm going to enjoy it, you know? And, and, and if you can maintain that level of enjoyment, that, that desire to have fun out on the court and express yourself, I guess for me, I would have those down as things that are in your control that, that, that are measures of success, you know, because you, you continue to do that as you've done so far I, I have no doubt that the result of that, the byproduct of that, is you'll have, continue to have lots of success on the court. Yeah, uh, then I'd I'd say uh, school, getting getting good grades. I think that's that's important for me. It's uh, 
obviously don't like school too much, but it's got to be done and something that I want to improve. Is this because your mom's going to listen to this podcast? Uh, she's no way. <laughs> nah, she, I won't tell her it's up. This is me. This is me. <laughs> Arthur, it's been a pleasure getting to know you a little bit better and, you know, wish you the best of luck the next few weeks, but also, also the next few years. And I hope that our paths cross out there at tournaments very soon. Thanks so much, Dan. Thanks for having me. Top man. I again thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. I feel I feel like a very lucky individual to be speaking to all of these amazing people from from the youth that we're watching come through to to the old of people that have seen there, been there and done it. And unfortunately I don't have Vicky by my side today due to many podcasts and many things going on we haven't been able been able to cross paths to to discuss this one before getting it out in time so you're stuck with me today and I don't want to keep you long but I just want to talk to you a little bit about something that really stood out for me during the podcast and that was Arthur wanting to play tennis the way that he likes to play tennis because he's entertained by tennis. And isn't that just a lovely way to look at the sport? I think we can sometimes get so caught up in where we're going and how we're going to get there and what the goal is that we're trying to achieve. Whereas actually just that ability to say, well, actually my way, my identity, my system, my processes is to play this way. And I enjoy that. And that brings absolute joy to me to go and express myself like that on the tennis court. And as I said at the start of the show, if you ever get a chance to watch Arthur play, you absolutely should. You know, he's going to bring a lot of joy to a lot of people over the years. He has a bright future ahead. He does it in the right way. He's incredibly skillful. And he puts all of those skills onto the tennis court to bring a real excitement now, but that comes through because that's who he is. That's who Arthur Ferry is. And it's really important for all coaches listening, for all parents listening. We need to know who our kids are, you know, what makes them tick. And then we need to encourage them to fly in the way that they want to fly. And I certainly believe Arthur is well on his way to doing that. But even if he didn't, He's going to take a hell of a lot from this experience, listening to him talk. Such a mature young man. And Arthur, if you're still listening at this point, I want to say a big, big thank you for you coming and brightening my day up. And I'm sure brighten up many people's day who have listened to this. As for the podcast, I hope all of you continue to enjoy it. And I hope you're enjoying Wimbledon on your televisions. Uh, what a match that was. Andy Murray, I can't not mention it. Uh, this is coming out now on, on Tuesday and Monday night, first day of Wimbledon. And, and I have to pick up on what he said in his interview. And I have to hold my hands up of being guilty of this on a podcast, saying I think this might be Andy Murray's last Wimbledon. Now, who am I to say that? You know, and I take that back, Andy, as I'm sure many journalists do and should, because it's up to Andy how he goes out in the game. And again, that simple message, he wants to play tennis. He loves playing tennis. And for me, that big takeaway I've taken from Arthur is also linked to what Andy said last night. And we're all behind you. You play tennis as long as you want. You've earned that right. Keep doing it and keep that smile on your face. 
I want to just read out one review. We've had quite a few reviews since the last podcast, so thank you for that. Um, Maureen B said, it's a first ever review, but the latest pod is just fabulous. I felt I was listening in to a group of people having a chat about their past experiences at Wimbledon. It was honest, authentic, and engrossing. And and I think so many people have reached out on the on the British grass court tennis podcast that we did with our amazing panel of 10 ex and current players. I, I think it was incredibly authentic. They spoke from their heart. They shared stories. They've continue and share, continued to share stories on our WhatsApp group. And it really was lovely. And if you haven't listened to that, I fully recommend you go back and listen to episode 125. As with the rest of our amazing podcasts, please, please keep sharing them. We have Dr. Jim Lair coming to you next week. I've had that conversation. It's a must listen. I promise you, it's a it's 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 a it's a must listen that you share with all of your kids, with anybody that's involved in the sport. He, if you don't know who Dr. Jim Lair is, it's L O E H R. I fully recommend you Google him, you look him up, you see all of the things he's done, not just in the sport, but in performance psychology. And we are very honoured to have him on the podcast. So that'll be coming out next week. But until next time, I'm Dan Kiernan and we are Control the Controllables.